My gut said you might be worth having on board, and I'm glad I followed it. Helping people has a funny way of coming back around, you know. In India, they call it karma. An assassin that believes in karma. Aye, <laughs> well, it's a complicated relationship. You've heard of it? Oh, yes. But karma is just mystic nonsense. It's not real. Aye, well, it's real to me, Professor. Saved my hide a few times in Madras when I was just a doe-eyed Bangalore pioneer. And it's real to you too, believe it or not. And what did I do to deserve this karma, Colonel? What great sin did I commit to have my entire world torn apart? Well, I wouldn't begin to guess. But there's a reason you're not swinging from a rope right now, Professor. The world isn't done with you quite yet. Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 245, Moriarty, The Devil's Game. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burt Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello there, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, is, is your game afoot? <laughs> well, yeah, I love to play uh, alternatively, sake and then, of course, soccer, and then, of course, uh, <laughs> hacky sack. So, yeah, my game is usually afoot. Well, you know, if you combine soccer and hacky sack, you do get sake, which is exactly what I'd be drinking while I watched. When I tried it, I wound up in Hackensack, New Jersey, and I couldn't figure out. It took me an hour and a half to get out of there, I must say. Good Lord. Wow. Well, hopefully it doesn't take folks as long to get out of here. We're, um, we're on the way to sending you, at least, Bert, uh, up the river as it were, <laughs> up the Hudson River, that is, to the oh. Baker Street Irregulars Sherlock Holmes and the British Empire Conference, which is happening this weekend, the weekend of uh, July 29th through 31st at uh, the Bear Mountain Inn in yeah, New York. Well, I, I thought I was going to be going up the Lazy River. Well, enjoy, you know, get your swimming trunks on and, and enjoy <laughs> it. A summertime conference is always good, but it yes. uh, looks like a wonderful 
agenda, looking at the empire in Sherlock Holmes's day, from India to Canada to Africa, uh, from journalism to telegraphy to dining, uh, women in the empire, warfare and whist, and lots of entertaining topics. And I think we are expecting you to be doing some reportage while you're yes, there. Yes, I'll be getting some audio, and I'll also be presenting on the canonical empire, the empire as it features in the canon. I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent. Well, my only regret is that I can't join you this time around, but I'll look forward to what comes out of it. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, what comes out of this episode can be found at iHose.co slash iHose245, all lowercase. That URL will take you directly to the I Hear of Sherlock.com uh, website, where you can find any links of what we're talking about uh, as uh, it pertains to the show. We do have a wonderful show lined up for you today, as you heard from that audio clip that we included. Uh, it is a fascinating conversation. Um, but in the meantime, if you would like to help support the show, that you would like to become a Patreon supporter to help us produce more shows like this and to do our research and all the rest and to send, to send Bird on his boondoggles like this up the Hudson River, um, feel free to uh, join us at patreon.com slash I hear of Sherlock also available as a link in the show notes. Uh, that means that uh, you will be a supporter of the show. And uh, we will have oh, things like prizes, thank you gifts, etc., as well as exclusive content available just to our Patreon supporters. It means a great deal to us, and it really helps us do what we do here. So thank you in advance. Charles Kindiger is a writer and creative producer working in film, television, and audio dramas. His theatrical film work includes Kill Switch, starring Dan Stevens, and Edge of Winter, starring Joel Kinnaman and Tom Holland. Most recently, he's the creator and executive producer of Moriarty, The Devil's Game, an Audible original, starring Dominic Monaghan, Billy Boyd, Phil Lamar, and Lindsay Whistler. Charlie Kindinger, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, well, thank you very thank much. You. We're, we're a huge fan of your work, and that's why we're oh. here uh, today. So let's let's begin where you know we always begin. How did you first meet Sherlock Holmes? Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been studying up for this question. I had to think <laughs> about it. Um, but as far as I can tell, the, my first interaction with Sherlock Holmes came from this PBS show, Wishbone. Are, are either of you familiar with oh, that sure. show? <laughs> yeah. What's the story, Wishbone? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, so as a young lad, I, um, I, I watched a lot of Wishbone, and I'm sure the first time I, I met Sherlock Holmes was uh, as a dog uh, when he was doing the <laughs> Hound of the Baskervilles adaptation on PBS. Um, I think there's a couple of them in that in that series, but but definitely the first time I heard of and encountered Sherlock Holmes in the wild. And, and, you know, after that, like, like many people, I got hooked and I had to read the, the short stories and eventually the, the novels themselves and make my way through the canon like, uh, like any fanatic would. Well, and a lot of people don't know this. That is not the worst version of the Hound of the Baskervilles that's ever made oh, it to not? the screen. No. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, William Shatner is Stapleton is, uh, was he Stapleton uh, that, in that remake? Yeah, with, uh, Stuart, with Stuart, Stuart Granger, Granger. right. Yeah. 
And Incredible. Pat McNee, Pat McNee was uh, Watson, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, talk to us a little bit about your your professional career, because you are not a full-time uh, Sherlockian. No, uh, not yet. I, I aspire to be. Uh, if, if such a thing exists, I'd love to be one. But um, but yeah, you know, I, I'm a writer uh, mostly for film and television, and uh, most recently with this audio drama or podcast, depending on who you talk to. Um, yeah, I, I, I have a, a brief career in Hollywood that is hopefully going to become longer after this comes out. Um, but, but yeah, before this, I was writing for um, feature film and for television and, and continue to do that. But uh, then I had the opportunity to do this audio drama, which was just an amazing experience um, for me and, and a great challenge as a writer because, uh, you know, usually when you're working in, in film and television, you have the benefit of, you know, seeing uh, things, showing the audience can see things, right? And uh, we just don't have that with the audio format. It, it's a lot is left to the imagination, which which is kind of the fun of it. You, but the writer really only has the tools of sound to kind of bring people into the world and, and tell their story. So, mm. yeah. Did you find that a challenge writing for audio? Because, you know, and particularly with the hound as an example, you know, there's a story where the, the hound, the, the moor, and we've had mm-hmm. talked about this in the podcast before, you know, things like the city or the moor or the surroundings become a character. So did you think about that when you were thinking up this? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, because most of my background has been in action and science fiction and like, you know, bigger things that require some visual spectacle to them. Um, I I knew this was going to be a challenge from the outset, only working in dialogue and then being able to paint a picture um, and set people and audiences in, in a place was without using narration, which if you've listened to the podcast, you know, we don't have a narrator to kind of sets things up for, for people. We just appear in scenes and it's kind of up to the audience to use the, the contextual cues to pick up, you know, where we are in London or, or thereabouts and, and kind of build the scene for themselves. Yeah. Because I knew, um, you know, I, I personally I've listened to audio dramas that have the narration and, and some of them are very great, but for this show, we really wanted it to feel just like a TV show for your ears, you know? And, and that meant that we wouldn't have uh, a narrator and we wouldn't have clunky dialogue at the beginning of every scene that explained where we were, right? For for example, I could be like, well, here I am in my closet talking <laughs> to, to you fine gentlemen and, and, and then the scene can now begin. Uh, we really wanted people to kind of just kind of you know use sound uh sound design and vis- uh, sound effects to kind of and, and every once in a while some dialogue to help build the scene in people's minds without being too you know over overbearing and, and hitting people over the head professor how's your head thought some coffee might help clear up the fogginess We've been trying to locate kin for Miss Winslow to let them know. Her uh, parents are gone. They died when she was a child. Hmm. Any brothers or sisters back in Durham? Other relatives? No. No, Inspector. She had no one except me. 
What about you? Anyone we should notify? Um, yes, my brother JJ. He's here in London. Oh. You have an address? Uh, uh, uh I'm sorry, he's... My head is still... He's, uh, station master. Um... Don't worry. We'll find him. Professor, is there anyone that would want to hurt your fiancé? Hurt Rose? No. She didn't mention someone giving her a hard time while you were here? No. What about back at the college? Any incidents with someone in town? Uh, not that I can think of. Rose hasn't had a problem with anyone as long as I've known her. How long has that been? Nearly six months. And you were engaged? Yes, in the spring. Rather quick. Not quick enough. I would have married her that day, but she insisted I finish my book first. Book? I thought you were a teacher. I research applied mathematics. Binomial distribution, exponential divergence. Ah, you're losing me, Professor. The college lends me time and resources for my studies. Rose and I decided to marry once my new book was done and published, but, well, I took too long, didn't I? And what were you two doing in London? Yeah, well, I think it works really well. I mean, the sound design here, uh, and folks have, uh, you know, heard this clip, uh, it's, it's just really, really engaging. And you say... You know, it's it's like a TV show for your ears. Uh, I, I remember reading just about the history of media development, and obviously in the 1920s and 30s, uh, people were most familiar with radio, and they would sit around their living room and watch the radio. And when television was introduced, it was called radio with pictures. <laughs> you know, and, and so you're, you're kind of backwards uh, engineering here. And I think what you've done, you and the team, uh, you know, between your writing and the wonderful sound design, it really is an immersive experience. And you feel like you are sitting in on some of these conversations, like you could you could actually picture the rooms or the, the street scenes in your mind as uh, as you're listening to it. Yeah, well, I would give most of the credit there to Tom Monahan and the team at Treefort Media, the audio team. They just did a wonderful job. My my role as writer was basically to make sure we didn't have too many scenes in a row that sounded like they would be taking place in the same type of location. Um, so we could get some variety in there and, and, and get that sense that we're moving around to different places. But uh, more often than not, I would just say, you know, yeah, we're we're in Baker Street. What does Baker Street sound like? That's up to Tom and the team to kind of figure out. Um, versus, you know, what is what does a police station sound like? What does a, a, a an office at the college sound like? Uh, so it, it just offered that team a unique challenge to kind of build out the world, and and they just did a fantastic job. They're real. They really did. And, you know, sound is, it's so important. And of course we love to talk about it because, you know, we are obviously audio mm -hmm. enthusiasts, but also from a writing standpoint, and you've already pointed this out, it is a real challenge to stay away from lines where characters say things like, your hand seems to be poising on that door, Dave. <laughs> yes. Are Let you me about just to pick leave? up this poker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. One of the big challenges for me uh, coming into it is, as I said, I, I, in my past, I've written a lot of action sequences and, and we really couldn't do too much in this show 
uh, by way of action, because how do you how do you hear a fight, you know, uh, or, you know, stop punching me or something like that, you know, unhand me, good sir. Uh, and every once in a while we throw we sprinkle those things in. But but really, we're we're trying to stay away from, yeah, showing the physicality on uh, or through dialogue. And, and it's a challenge, but um, hopefully, hopefully people pick up on it and uh, and enjoy the ride. No, no, no question. Well, I mean, in addition to talking about the, the the sound design and how the you know the team actually constructed these episodes, I'm interested, Charlie, in understanding about the evolution of this show overall. Um, yeah. Understanding how something like this just comes to be. Was it that you? You had a show in you and you shopped it around or was it that uh, a production company just tapped you and said, hey, we're looking to form a, uh, a Sherlock Holmes podcast and we think you're the guy? How does this actually happen? Yeah, so it's a it's a long and winding tale, but I'll give you the abridged version. Uh, I had long uh, wanted to do something in the universe of Sherlock Holmes as a fan. You know, I, I had thought about even writing fan fiction for a time, but you know, when you're out out here in in Hollywood, you're trying to you're trying to make a buck, right? So you want to. So fan fiction doesn't always it doesn't always pay, right? And, and so I was thinking, oh, like, oh well, we know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, so I was looking for ways to incorporate my love for Sherlock uh, in a way that might be interesting for other people uh, in in the form of a a movie or a TV show or 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 even you know an audio drama like this. And so I I had reread the final problem, which is a heavy influence on this particular story. And I, I, there's this passage at the beginning where Holmes is discussing with Watson who Moriarty is, right? And, and this epic game of cat and mouse that they've been having for, for what seems like months, you know, but it's only like a paragraph at the beginning of the story. And I had this thought of like, well, that sounds really interesting. Why isn't there more of this, you know, in the sh in the canon? I'd love to hear what happened and how did this, you know, how did this come to be and why did they get why did they start going back and forth at one another? And and so I got really interested in this idea of like Sherlock and Moriarty doing battle over over time versus sadly and you know, there's not a lot of Sherlock and Moriarty facing off in the actual canon, right? They're, they're just, they barely cross paths. And um, it's just implied that they have been kind of going back and forth for for ages. And and I thought, well, that'd make a really cool story. And so I I started to I kind of started there. And and at the time when I was telling people about my idea, the the Robert Downey Jr. movies were very popular. The new BBC Sherlock was very, was just becoming very popular, and even Elementary was on the horizon. So, like, the universe was just kind of the, the the entertainment universe was it was pretty saturated with Sherlockian stuff, right? So it went away for a little while, and I kind of sat on this idea, and and then uh, luckily uh, a couple of years ago, I was talking to my friend Elliot, who's the director of this show, and he had just met. Kelly Garner and the team at, at Treefort and and they were starting this new thing called you know fiction podcast or narrative podcast or audio dramas depending on how you want to slice it and, and they were looking for material and I said I have got a great idea that you know I don't think has been explored in this medium yet 
and and the big twist you know with mine was was of course that Moriarty we we're going to just tell the story from Moriarty's point of view and um and really kind of get to know him more as a character and understand like well what happened before the events of the final problem that kind of lead us to the Reichenbach Falls. Uh, that was my big pitch to the team, and and they they ate it up, and and so we we started to develop mm-hmm. it further. We got Dominic Monahan involved very early on. Wow. He was he was interested in um, in becoming our, our our Moriarty. So he's he was attached very early on, and uh, we were able to record a, a teaser trailer with him, uh, along with me writing a first first draft of the pilot and a bible for the show we went around and went out to buyers like you do in you know when you're selling any kind of tv show you put together a package and and we had this great package and uh, audible jumped on it and and that's kind of how it came to be wow that's fascinating yeah. yeah and and i must say dominic monahan as moriarty it's actually a masterstroke because, you know, we usually think of Moriarty as this elderly professor, this, you know, this evil genius who sounds evil. And Dominic Monaghan actually comes across as obviously a youngish Moriarty, um, mm-hmm. early middle-aged, obviously, um, you know, someone who is about to really hit his stride professionally. He actually comes across as likable. I mean, we are we are in full <laughs> sympathy with Moriarty in this situation. The, the persecuted professor, as it were, the, the, the lovelorn uh, Moriarty who finds that uh, the world is not as he thought it would be. And What's fascinating to me is to hear the evolution over the course of these 10 episodes, how, and and I don't want to give too much away here, but how Colonel Moran basically takes an innocent and naive Moriarty and begins to turn him. And it's just a fascinating look versus the other way around where you think, oh, Moriarty just kind of tapped this henchman, his number two guy uh, from somewhere. Uh, It's a really, really interesting twist. Yeah, I mean, we really wanted to explore, you know, the motivations behind the whole Moriarty character. Because, again, like he's on the Mount Rushmore of literary villains. And yet we don't really know, like well, why is he a bad guy? What's he after? What are the motivations there? And what are the things that make him tick? And so that's what the story kind of seeks to explore. And, and Moran's a huge part of that. Yeah. It's, it's basically, we, we wanted to start with someone who was, who was very innocent and kind of asked the question, you know, like what makes a man evil? Is it, is it the, his actions or the intentions behind them? Like, where is that line? And if you cross it, can you ever come back? And, and yes, Moran is a huge part of that, uh, played by the amazing Billy Boyd, who was a fine, uh, fine, uh, I didn't even say fine. He's an amazing actor <laughs> and, and got, and, and really uh, him and Dom are best friends in real life. So it, when he came aboard to be our Moran, uh, you can really feel the, the love there and they have a great relationship both on and off the recording and, and it really comes through in their dialogue together. Hmm. Now, was it a conscious choice to give Moran a Scottish accent? I believe it was. Yes. No, we always knew he was going to be a Scotsman. Now, and then you will have to. T- I, 
you can test me on this because I don't actually know. Is is Moran supposed to be Scottish? I think he's Irish. He's Irish. Okay. Yes. Well, so well, the name we, the name we, itself we, is Irish, but I don't think know, he's ever referred to as no. Irish, right? I mean, he is he is he is the son of the minister of Persia, if I remember his biography. Mm-hmm. And he's a colonel in Her Majesty's Indian Army. You know, when we encounter him late, much later than the time of this story. So, um, but that's all we know about him. So the question is, you know, what nationality would the son of, would the minister of Persia have been? And who knows? You know, I, I, I like to think of it as a nod to Conan Doyle. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, it's nice. Certainly, <laughs> certainly part of it. Yeah. I mean, we really, again, with Moran, we we only have pieces of of who he is, and the great thing about only having a few little uh, nuggets in the canon is you can kind of build off from that and, and take things in in different and interesting ways, and and that's that's what we aim to do with him. And, and Billy just kind of brought brought a whole new uh, version of Moran to the table, which we we absolutely loved. Mm. Well, it's lovely because, you know, you get a lot of things out of that accent. First of all, it's a real introduction to character. You know, you as the as the voice artist can do a lot of character around those speech mm-hmm. patterns and so on. But also it's a great fingerprint. There's never any confusion about who's talking when you've got when you've got a character, you know, with that with that accent. And it's perfectly, you know, appropriate for the time and, and the personalities. Yeah, that's actually one of the big challenges of the show that we faced kind of going into production was, well, a lot of these people are going to sound very similar. Right. And so yeah. we are looking, we were looking for ways to kind of differentiate ourselves. And Moran is one place where we can kind of push ourselves a little bit off of the the standard, uh, you know, the standard London accent. And, and I am, I admit, I am, well, you know what I sound like. I'm I'm a Midwestern boy from Chicago. I, I, I've been to London once. I don't know the, the different, uh, you know, the different, uh, what's dialects the word? Or, yes, yeah. the different the regional, dialects. Yeah, but, but we had, a, exactly. And we had, and this is where Team Treefort and the cast came in in a big way and helped us out because we, we have a very authentic cast who would come in and be like, what kind of accent do you want? Because we've got, you know, we've got upper, upper London, we've got, you know, different 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 uh dialects to choose from and we and most of our cast is is from the uk so they brought the authenticity that that someone like me like i only have it in my head as as the writer and i i certainly couldn't execute it uh uh in in real you know if i was asked to do a dialect i could not do it well we'll come back and talk a little bit more about some of these characters um a couple in particular, right after this quick word from our sponsor. The MX Book of New Sherlock Holmes Stories is the world's largest collection of new traditional Sherlock Holmes stories with all author royalties going to the Undershaw School for Children with Learning Disabilities. And as of the end of June 2022, these authors have raised over $100,000 for Undershaw. That donation, which continues to rise, has been gifted from the royalties of all of the stories coming from the MX book of New Sherlock Holmes stories. The deep partnership between Undershaw and MX Publishing has spanned a number of years and has witnessed many changes. Undershaw, of course, 
was the house built for Arthur Conan Doyle in order to accommodate his wife's health requirements, and it's where he lived from, with his family from 1897 to 1907. While he was there, he would have worked on The Return of Sherlock Holmes and The Hound of the Baskervilles. And that continues now with the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, now up to part 23, under the capable editorial guide of David Markham. Congratulations to our friends at MX Publishing on reaching the $100,000 mark in their support of Undershaw. As you continue to show interest in the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, MX Publishing will continue to be able to support Undershaw and all that it offers, those beacons of the future. Check out the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories at mxpublishing.com. Mr. Prosecutor. Your Lordship, if it pleases the court, the Crown would call one final testimony to the stand. You may proceed. What? No! Objection! The prisoner does not hold the right to make objections, nor to speak unless it directed to do so. Your Lordship, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the Crown respectfully calls Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Holmes? Mr. Sherlock Holmes, do you swear to God and Her Majesty the Queen that all your testimony will be honest and true? I do. You may sit, sir. The prosecution may proceed. Thank you, Your Lordship. Mr. Holmes, do you know the prisoner that stands accused? Only by reputation. And what reputation is that? The professor is a rising star in Europe's intellectual community. He is a man of good birth, excellent education, and phenomenal mathematical faculty. From what I've read, he had a brilliant career before him. Before this. And is it true that the prisoner requested your consultation on the matters of which he is charged? He wrote you, but you declined. Yes. I could not assist him, seeing as the professor is a killer. No! Order! Order! You were sure of this when the professor wrote you, Mr. Holmes, without having stepped foot on the scene or, or seen the evidence. I had all the evidence I needed in the strokes of his pen. The professor's script points strongly to the criminal strain. My script? Am I to hang on the basis of my handwriting? Silence! Mr. Moriarty, if you cannot contain yourself, you will be removed. Okay, we're back talking with Charlie Kindinger about Moriarty, uh, the new Audible original podcast, uh, officially called Moriarty, The Devil's Game. Uh, fascinating, uh, fascinating show, as you could hear from that clip right there. Um, we, we were talking just before the break, Charlie, about uh, the characterization, and I think it's wonderful how um, audibly you, you create this, uh, this, this stark difference between the characters. Because, of course, in the visual media, we can see how different these characters are. And 
uh, Lord knows, to look at Moriarty versus looking at Moran, well, of course, you can plainly see how different they are, starkly different. So uh, wonderful that their voices are different. And you mentioned that most of the cast here is from the U.K., um, there is one exception I wanted to call out here, and that is Curtis Armstrong, given a really nice cameo as Chief Inspector Gregson. And what really fascinated me was not only that Curtis Armstrong, who's a member of the Baker Street Irregulars and a fine actor, um, but that you gave such prominence to Gregson so early on I'm through the first five episodes. Uh, talk a little bit about that decision to give Gregson more prominence than Lestrade in this instance. Yeah, well, well, first of all, Curtis is amazing. And, and I have to say, having him as a part of the show was a complete delight because I, I had spent a lot of nights up worrying about, well, am I going to anger the, the diehards, you know, the, the true, the people from the BSI, you know, the true Sherlockians. And when we got him on board, uh, he came on and gave us his blessing, and, and it really allowed me to breathe a little bit easier. Uh, uh, but as it pertains to Gregson, uh, we knew we wanted to have some characters that were not Moriarty or Sherlock in the background talking about things, helping us flesh out the world. And for those that have listened to the show, both both Lestrade and Gregson play roles in, in different ways. And, and to have Gregson is kind of the, uh, the guy that's a little bit more tuned in to what's going on and, and maybe who Sherlock really is was, was something we wanted to explore early on in our show. You know, maybe there's not, maybe he's not all that he he's cracked up to be. And maybe, maybe there's something beneath the surface to Sherlock that, uh, is worth investigating further. And that's where Gregson comes in and, and Curtis played him flawlessly. And he also <laughs> does a great job of, uh, you know, being the boss to Lestrade, who is this put upon inspector that is really uh, in our show. He is a guy that's just beginning to get into forensics and fingerprints and all those types of things that at the time were just, you know, new technologies that may or may not have been adopted by by police forces at that time, and uh, and for someone like Gregson, not not worth his time to to go and dust for fingerprints. But uh, we wanted to kind of counterbalance Lestrade's interest in in forensics with someone who was just a little bit more uh, uh, street smart versus book smart, I guess. Mm. And and that's where that's where Gregson came to be. How did how did the overall process of building all this out take? Because you know, as, as you know better than anybody, you know, in some productions of series and um, projects like this, you know, you would be doing table reads and you'd be involved with the actors, and the actors, you know, have a role in creating the character and changing the lines. I mean, did did some of this uh, transform as as sort of the actors got their got around the dialogue and and looked at some of these scenes, or or has this been fairly you know, cast in stone since, since uh, you know, you began and you got into production. Well, we always wanted to give the actors the opportunity to kind of try different lines, you know, and, and, and make the roles their own. But we had to go into production with, you know, most of the script there, all of the script there, really. There was, there was a version of the script that existed. Uh, and then because of 
because of COVID protocols, we we had to do everything from a recording standpoint over Zoom. And there wasn't a lot of time to get people together and talk about who these characters were and, you know, how they might be portrayed in, in this medium. So so a lot of it ultimately fell to me at the beginning of the process to to write what turned out to be a very long script. And then we handed it off to to Dom and to Billy and to others and said, like, here's what it is. We did one table read just to kind of let the audio team know, here's kind of what it's going to sound like. And um, and that from that table read, the audio team was able to go and start kind of building out some of the worlds because they knew things weren't going to change too much. Mm. Um, but certainly lines changed within scenes. And, and when we brought on Phil Lamar, uh, who's our Sherlock and an amazing Sherlock at that. He had a, had takes on lines and, and ways uh, to kind of, you know, take things in a different direction without, you know, we had to stay within certain guardrails because we couldn't do a lot of rewriting of plots on, on the fly, you know, but mm. within scenes we would find, Oh, this, we don't need to say this line or this line could be cleaner if we said it like this. Cause again, this is a show that, for for at least a year just lived exclusively in my head and sometimes when you get when you get actors in front of a microphone and they say it out loud you're like yeah that sounds not great maybe there's a better way <laughs> to to say that line and so we would do tweaks on the fly to certain lines um because again we only have the dialogue to convey our story so the dialogue really had to be there um mm. yeah yeah, and uh, obviously a show like this, of this level, of this depth, of this quality, is clearly the work of a team. And and here you are as the creator, the writer, someone, as you say, who lived with it in your head for a year. And when you first heard the production, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're doing table reads and stuff like that, but when you first heard it with sound design and the full production, talk to us a little bit about your your impressions your reaction well i was blown away again tree fort tom the whole team over there they did an amazing job um will who is our composer created an amazing score to go with it and and to hear it all come together in you know in, in something that just isn't my own head was was a real trip because uh, it sounded better it sounded way better than i had ever imagined it could sound um so it's very interesting too, because when you're doing something, you know, when you're collaborating on any type of project, people bring their own takes to, to scenes and to, you know, oh, sound effects and, and that kind of stuff that, that you would never think about. And, and almost every, all the time it's additive, it's better than whatever you had come up with. And, and so this is really just an opportunity for me to say, like, here's here's the story. We have some great actors doing the recordings, and then the sound team got to take it and just like level things up. And and, and I think they did an amazing job. Yeah, I mean, and it, it really shows the difference versus just a couple of hacks sitting in their offices <laughs> interviewing people for audio <laughs> versus a, a real never, professional production. That would never yeah. fly. Nobody would listen. To that. <laughs> Um, so you, you mentioned uh, Phil Lamar as Sherlock Holmes. This is a very different Sherlock Holmes than I think most people are used to. 
Uh, and I was uh, obviously the, the. I don't want to give too much away, uh, but the uh, the the competitiveness or the uh, obviously arch rival nature of the relationship with Moriarty is fascinating. But uh, it seemed like it was a very ego driven Holmes, more than we're used to, um, and and less bound by the law and norms, just willing to go that extra mile. And there were a couple of lines I. I wrote down uh, from some of the episodes where he said, I am justice, or I am the authorities, or I'm the only God the surgeon needs to answer to. And I was like, whoa. I mean, that's like, even for Sherlock Holmes, that's a lot. Talk to us yeah. a little bit about about your Sherlock in this particular production. Yeah, our version of Sherlock uh is probably going to upset some people. In fact, I, I already know from some reviews that we've upset some people. Um, but yes, you're, you're absolutely right. The ego is, is a big part of Sherlock's character. He is a man who has let all of the fame and publicity that comes from being Sherlock Holmes get to his head. And so he's got, you know, he's got a big ego. His head's bursting out of his deerstalker. And uh, he lets he lets people know, you know, he knows how good he is and he lets people know about it. And uh, I like to say there we all know there's these celebrities out there that look like wonderful people when they're on TV. But if you get them behind the scenes, they kind of turn into, you know, less nice people, not so nice people. So. And that's kind of our version of Sherlock is is a lot of his a lot of what we know is a facade to uh, a more ego maniacal person. And and it's said that uh, history is written by the victors. So our pitch for the show is, well, maybe um, maybe the reason Sherlock is portrayed as he is in the canon is because, you know, they won. Well, well, it's, yeah, it's part. It's part of the fun, though, too. You know, Alexis Soloski at the Times did a lovely story uh, early in July in the New York Times about all this, and she said, yes. "I think in there, she says during Conan Doyle's life, Holmes appeared in many disguises. He was a clergyman, a sailor, an old woman, and he's ranged further since then. He's become a brawler, a lover." a reanimated corpse with a robot companion, a foe of the old gods. I See, I haven't seen all these things. A doctor, a woman, a teen, and, you know, a few other, she says, 19th century literary figures rival Holmes' fame. And then in her article there, uh, Les, Les Klinger pointed out, you know, he's a figure that can work in any environment, in any planet, in any era. And that's really what makes him popular. So I think it's uh, it's part of the fun. For sure. And I had the opportunity to, to, to speak to Alexis and be a part of that article. And, and what she had brought up was, was something that we were trying to do, which was there are aspects to Holmes in our show that uh, are, are very true to his character. For example, um, the way he treats Watson at times or, or his regard for women. We've taken... Um, those aspects of his character and just heighten them a little bit in places to, to make him, you know, more of an antagonist in when we're putting him up against somebody like uh, Moriarty, who in our show is, is more of a good guy. (laughs) Well, you know, she, she, she closed that, um, her coverage there of all of this. I thought very well, she said, 
Um, you know, this can work as a way to reconsider Holmes, to accept his strengths like intelligence and doggedness and his weaknesses and his quirks. We can understand him as limited, prone to error, doing the best he can with his particular gifts and deficits. So maybe after all this time, we can finally understand him as human. I thought that was really beautifully. And then who knew when she, I never knew until she wrote this, that she herself is a, is a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. Yeah, that's uh, that's what she told me when when we had our, our chat. She she had come to the same realization herself that she had read um, many of the stories and was kind of testing me on things that like I was not expecting from, you know, from a New York Times reporter necessarily like about testing me on the canon. And I, she really <laughs> knows her stuff. And uh, yeah, a huge fan like we all are. That's wonderful. So speaking of fandom, um, you know, I can think back to uh, certainly the 80s and 90s when uh, John Gardner wrote his, uh, what, what became a three-part Moriarty series, where he really went deep in, in depth in, in terms of the character and, and the underground. Um, but I also think back, obviously, to Nicholas Meyer's the 7% solution where we had, again, a persecuted Moriarty who was in, in, uh, you know, trying to survive the, the drug addled uh, hallucinations of Sherlock Holmes. Did any of these earlier works come into play in terms of how you thought about your own creation? Yeah, in a way uh, I tried to be mindful of staying away from, from a lot of those because I didn't want to be accused of, you know, ripping them off. Um, though I, you know, I, I, I obviously love the 7% solution. It's one of my favorites. And I, for, when we were doing ours, we wanted, I guess I had always pitched this as kind of like the fugitive, but in the world of Sherlock Holmes. Right. So like, <laughs> what if, uh, you know, what if Moriarty is our Harrison Ford or Richard Kimball, and then chasing him down is our, the Tommy Lee Jones character would be Sherlock Holmes. And I thought that would always be a fun kind of window into, into how we would play things. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Yeah, I, I tried very hard to stay away from a lot of the Sherlock adaptations, especially when I was writing um, because I, you know, things can bleed creatively and without you even being cognizant or intentional about them. So, yeah, well, I, I think it's just a, a wonderful addition to the pantheon of you know, really interesting productions that take a different look at this classic relationship. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I certainly did my research. I think a big part of my my process was I have here the uh, the William S. Baring Gould um, mm. annotated Sherlock Holmes was a huge part of my process as I went in to 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 kind of dissect the canon and and put it you know I wanted to take it apart and put it together in a new way. But I at the same time we always wanted to be authentic and you know as as endearing and true to the world as possible, you know, where, where it served the story. Uh, we, sometimes we had to take liberties of course, but, um, but in the, but we're all coming from a place of love and, and me most of all, I just love this character and I wanted to, 
I really wanted to honor the canon in a way. And if you could see my office, you would see it's littered with note cards that have quotations or places <laughs> or events from the canon that I, I pulled out early on in the writing process. And I was like, oh, it would be really cool if this line came up. But in our show, this line just with the subtext means something completely different. And again, mm. I go back to the final problem. And uh, there's that one scene where, where Holmes and Moriarty meet in, you know, at Baker Street. And I thought, I, oh, would it be really, it'd be really cool if that scene played almost beat for beat the same, but the, the way we got there is different and the meaning behind the words is different. And, and so that was a lot of the fun in, in this show was um, finding places to sprinkle in, you know, nuggets and Easter eggs and stuff like that. That's really, really neat. And, and obviously as a, uh, a committed Sherlockian, I heard some of those lines jump out or uh, understood some of the references uh, that you were making, you know, uh, there was one about Moran, um, you know, being down in the ditch and escaping the tiger. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that familiar stuff, familiar stuff. So a <laughs> uh, sense of comfort there that even though we're in a strange new world, there are these touch points that make us feel like, okay, I, I can understand the orientation now. Well, the last thing you want as a fan, because I'm a fan of, of many of these types of you know, big worlds, is the last thing you want is for some writer to come in and just completely trash something that you love and i think we were all in creating this cognizant of like we're taking a pretty big swing here and we might upset some people especially people that you know are are, are beholden to the the original text and and what i was trying to do and, and what all of us were trying to do was just you know let people know like we love this character and this world as much as you. We respect it. We honor it. And, and yes, we're going to take it in a different direction, but we're, but we're, you know, we're well studied in the world and we're not, you know, we're not disparaging it without, uh, without doing our homework. You know, you have to know the rules before you can bend them. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, Charlie, what's next for you? Well, uh, we just got back from Comic-Con where we were promoting the show, uh, and the hope is that there'll be a season two. I mean, uh, Moriarty is on the minds of a lot of people right now. Audible seems to be enjoying, uh, enjoying it. And there's a lot of people out there that are enjoying it. So we're hoping that uh, enough people show up to listen to it and give us a good review that uh, we're, we're able to do a season two. And, and who knows, from there, maybe Moriarty will become more. There's, there's talks of potentially, potentially being a TV show. Uh, we'll see. Oh, fun. Wow. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. That would be yeah. great. Well, Charles Kindinger, writer of Moriarty, The Devil's Game from Audible Originals and Treefort Media. Thank you so much for joining us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thanks for having me. This has been great. It's a great thing, the number of writers, you know, that we've managed to talk to and the fun of those conversations and especially to talk to somebody like Charlie, who clearly loves the characters, loves the canon, knows the canon, is so, um, you know, shares our enthusiasm and love for the characters. It's, and it's great that this project 
you know, which involved an enormous amount of effort over a long period of time, you know, got, got launched. It's great. It is. And, you know, I mean, there's a number of uh, types of podcasts out there. Obviously, there's the straight interview show like we do here. Obviously, we have our uh, discussion show uh, with trifles where we talk about the Sherlock Holmes stories. There are true crime podcasts. But I think this uh, wonderful uh, niche of podcast dramas in a, in a limited series run is is really a wonderful thing. And when you have a team of people and uh, you know, executives, writers, et cetera, that really know their material. It really makes it a joy, not only for them to create, I would imagine, but certainly for us to experience as listeners. One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back. The 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, Art Direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne-Margaret Lewis, Steve Hawkinsmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes, the illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler, drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review, at wessexpress.com. It's everybody's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we ask you to plumb the depths of your knowledge of the Sherlock Holmes stories and come up with what it is that we are talking about. I mean, let's face it, sometimes we don't even know what we're talking about. Right, Bert? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what you mean. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, well, if you are familiar with the show, uh, that means that uh, you may have heard the one from episode 244, which went something like this. A friendly sojourn in the park quite nearly costs a case. The restless client stamped about. Should he not hop in place? Bert. <laughs> Uh, do you know what we're on about with this one? Yes, unfortunately, it's an early failure by Holmes. It's a story about a beautiful American contralto and her strange diet. And that's the case Watson called A Scandal in Bulimia. Oh. Yeah, that, that calls for the sad trombone. Um, if, if I could have, I would have pulled out the sad 76 trombones for you, but... <laughs> The other 75 were occupied. No, uh, that, that was not uh, a scandal in bulimia or bohemia even. Um, and our friend Eric Deckers does not let us down. He said it's the story about the baseball catcher, fav- famous for his malapropisms and catechesis, who asks Holmes for help in recovering a large clay vessel 
from the Ming Dynasty. It's the Yogi Berra vase. And he said, see, if you know anything about baseball, that's hilarious. Except I don't know if Yogi and Sherlock Holmes overlap, so it's more likely to be the yellow face. Well, yes, that that is what we're looking for, the yellow face. Well, uh, let's turn to the big prize wheel here and give it a spin. No, that's not it. Let's turn to the prize wheel here and give it a big spin. Ah, there it is. Uh, watching it come around and magically landing on random number 35. 35. That's a good roulette number, by the way, if you're looking to go to the tables with that. Number 35 looks like it is. Oh, will you look at that? It's Eric Decker's. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, all of your effort finally paid off. Uh, yes, we do have a copy of what do we have? The Finest Assorted Collection. Yes. Uh, wonderful essays there that we talked with uh, Rob and Peter about in the last episode. So, Eric, we will send a copy of that book your way. In the meantime, let's cue up this clue from episode 245. Watson knew the hunt was on, a wild beast in the night. Mrs. Hudson changed the figure just eight times to get it right. If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. And this time around, we'll have some wonderful... Items from the Sherlockian vaults. Tony Katroki has been very generous in donating books and magazines and other ephemera to the uh, vaults, and we will have some of that stuff to send out to you next time. So stay tuned. Well, Bert, I suppose by the time you listen to this, you'll be at Bear Mountain. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully. Yes. Are you having a good time? I've been having a wonderful time. The program was absolute. Program is just absolutely fabulous, and the speakers. I'm just go. go. I go from astonishment to to in <laughs> to to uh, incredulity to incongruity to undecipherable to to all sorts of adjectives. Oh, so you're and you're presenting? Yes, I. <laughs> yes, I. I am uh, presenting them, but only if I've been present. Oh, perfect. And wow. actually, you know, my hobby, as you well know, is to be omnipresent. So I think it probably went really well. Omnipresent and omnipotent. Yeah. You have it well, all. Well, I don't yeah. know about that, but certainly omnipresent. Okay. Well, uh, enjoy the bewilderment in the wilderness, as it were, <laughs> up, there, up there in the Catskills. Well, in the meantime, this is the highly skilled Scott Monty. And I'm the one standing next to the elk. I'm Bert Wolder. <laughs> and together, we say... The, the Games of Foot! foot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Games, games of Foot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. 
Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 